We've all been in situations where we've had something that we had to do, but we can't quite bring ourselves to get on with it. Whether it's cleaning the car, tackling the understairs cupboard, or sorting out those insurance renewals. There are just some things that are difficult for us to get enthusiastic about. And that's often the case with teens and studying. For some, the pressure of a deadline might be enough to spur them into action. But this year, more than any other, our young children will benefit from finding it in themselves to make a start on their studies. Unfortunately, knowing that something's for the best is, is rarely enough. If it were that simple, my man cave of a garage wouldn't look like 3D Tetris. Hello and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, the founder of The Study Buddy and your host. In this, our second season of the podcast, we're following six students as they head towards their GCSEs in 2021. Each week, I catch up with these very different teens to see how things are going in a one-to-one coaching session. With a panel of experts in our weekly podcast, we discuss some of the issues that come up. These could be broad themes such as motivation or managing mental health, or they can be quite focused, such as how to revise for a specific subject. These are normal teens, so you can be sure that we'll be covering the topics that young people up and down the country will face. So, if you're a parent, carer or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. In this episode, we're thinking about motivation and how to encourage our teens to find what will drive them. I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Strickland and also Steve Oakes and Martin Griffin. Sam is the principal at Dunstan School and author of Education Exposed, Leading a School in a Time of Uncertainty. Steve and Martin are co-authors of A-Level Mindset, GCSE Mindset and, more recently, The Student Mindset. Both are former teachers and founders of Vespa Mindset. Thank you all for joining me. Struggling to find your mojo isn't new. But this year, quite unlike any other year, there's a shared experience of COVID that our students are going through. What's been especially interesting for me in talking to our six students is just how differently people respond to their circumstances. Robin and Joe, for example, were quite fired up, while Alex and Lee seem completely unfazed. This isn't a reflection of how well they want to do, though, and it's not necessarily the size of their ambition, either. I set goals for myself in each subjects kind of so I know what kind of grade I would want in that subject and what grade do I need to go to like college and university and then um, if I think I'm a, a quite good at it then I did it a little bit higher. Sam you've been a teacher for quite a while why do you think it is that children respond so differently? Every child's different I suppose is uh, is probably the starting point and the, and the motivation that every child has is different. Equally, there are there's a lot of similarity and a lot of common ground as well between many pupils and many children. And I think in terms of motivating children, it needs to start at an early age. It needs to start quite low down in a pupil's you know, school career. It's not something you can just suddenly tag on sort of six weeks before the GCSE or A-level exams begin. It's something that you, you need to have a, a grounding in for, for years and years and years in advance. And if I kind of put it in a, in a sporting sense, perhaps, let's just say you're training to become a, a black belt, you need to know what the end goal is. But the end goal, if that's all that's presented, can be hugely daunting because it looks like it's something that's completely unachievable. So it's stripping everything back to the starting point and the building blocks and thinking over time, how do you build towards this big 
almost insurmountable and unachievable target that might appear for some pupils unachievable. I suppose it's like trying to climb Everest. There's a degree of training you have to go through to get there. It's the baby steps that actually built up over time and repeated and rehearsed allow that almost elite performance in the exam hall, for sake of argument with exams, to actually happen. But equally, for those external supportive factors, it's knowing that families, parents, etc., are going to be there, are going to support you, are going to take an active interest in you, that they're going to sit with you and, and map out a plan of attack uh, over a sustained window of time. If you're a year 11 pupil, that parents make a realistic kind of proposition to their sons or daughters about how they're going to prepare for GCSE exams, again, for sake of argument, throughout the course of the academic year. But also part of it as well is also the timing, as in if you say too much too soon as well. So GCSE exams is the prime example. If we start talking about them from the word go at the start of year 11, you could find that you've burnt a pupil out or your child out by potentially November because you're constantly talking about it. So it's it's knowing the individual. It's having, I would argue, a plan and it's having a, a series of kind of systematic steps that you can take throughout the course of a year or the lifespan of a pupil while they're in school to try and build up to whatever your end goal, your end target is. I think the idea of a goal is so interesting. Certainly for me personally, when my son was doing his GCSEs, God, what feels like a lifetime ago now, but I think three years ago, he really wanted to be a doctor. And this was the thing that he would he would tell us, I'm going to be a doctor. But actually, it wasn't enough to get him into gear to do something. So a goal on its own isn't as motivating as it should be, Martin. Is that right? Yeah, I would say a, a useful way of thinking about it is to consider motivation in two stages. Activation, that is the, the motivation necessary to actually get your head down and do some work but there's then sustaining that over a period of time i think sam touched on that in his answer so some techniques are good for activation you might suggest particular tricks or tactics that actually get the work started and fundamentally what steve and i have noticed i think in our work is that a sense of purpose is also important students are going to value the goal this the notion that reaching the goal means improved outcomes and a better life. There's a, a message here about the, the potential value of the goal that needs to be explored as well, I think. And Steve, how can we differentiate between a goal and vision? Are they equally as important? Well, I was just thinking what you were saying about your son, you know, he might have had a vision or a, a dream, I suppose, of being a, a doctor. But the difference, I think, between, you know, a vision and a goal is goal orientation means taking action towards that goal. So actually doing something about it. And if you do get somebody who's not taking action, I think it's worth revisiting that goal. You know, even in the case of your son, was that really what he wanted to do? Because if he's not taking action, usually there is a reason for that lack of action. That's sometimes worth exploring. And sometimes students you find can hang on to a vision that they had earlier on in the school career but actually it's changed over a period of time and you've got to go back to that and revisit it. Mm. I think with Jake as you say was, he was very very clear that this is what he wanted but I wonder whether for him and for many many students out there that actually that vision that ultimate goal if you like was just so nebulous it was just so far away it's, it's like a million years into the future I'm going to be a doctor 
Whereas actually right here and right now, I want to be entertained. I want to be, I want to just be amused. I mean, he was, he was motivated. He just wasn't motivated to work. He was motivated to find out everything there is to find out about basketball and those kinds of things. So going back to then what Sam was talking about, about taking these steps and finding mini goals along the way, if you like, is that something that's easily achieved? Do our children really get this idea that there are, I suppose, different goalposts along the way, mile markers towards our vision, Sam? I don't think every pupil probably understands that to begin with. This is where the, the kind of synergy and the relationship between the school and parents really comes into play, or families comes into play, where the school has a responsibility, I think, to outline to pupils the, the wider purpose of goal setting, but also of those mini markers that we're talking about. As to parents, and I think it's really important that whilst we might talk to our pupils about this as, a, as an establishment, if we take the school first and foremost, it's also important that schools talk to parents to educate parents in how to do that with their children as well. And that there is a real open and fluid dialogue between the two key stakeholders that are trying to support the pupils ultimately to achieve whatever their ambitions might be. There's a lot of work there to do, I would argue, personally. Mm. Steve, how best can parents get involved in this? Is it conversations with teachers or is it something that they need to dig deep and look about how they were motivated and energised to, to get on as students themselves? One of the best ways to do it is some pointed out, and I think it's often overlooked in around motivation is that we are all different you know that's why psychology has a whole area called individual differences you know what motivates us all can be very different as a parent one of the things you've got to do first and this can be hard sometimes because you might have your own vision yourself of where you think you know you'd like kids to go but actually they choose different paths and sometimes you know can be completely opposite to what you were thinking they might go on and do and I've always just tried with my students I've worked with and my own kids just to provide them with a like a menu a rich menu the younger they are just expose them to as many different things as possible and let them find their way and and they'll find what motivates them once you offer that rich menu to them and just let them try different things and i think the minute we start trying to push too much down one route we can often get conflict nobody likes to be controlled people like you know to have that opportunity to make their own decisions and decide where they want to go so just let them experiment i think the key is experimentation as young as possible and hopefully that'll open up different avenues something that chimed a little alarmingly perhaps as you were talking about the difference that a parent might have as their sort of vision for what the child has over the child themselves and certainly when they're younger i think we see this a lot don't we as as children aspire to be mermaids or superheroes and and we sort of encourage that kind of thing you can be anything you want to be you've just got to dream hard enough and then at some point and I don't really remember when it was, but you start saying, to be honest, you're probably not going to play for Arsenal. So you need a you need a more realistic goal. And we start to sort of shape that vision against what it was that they were necessarily originally going for into something that we as parents see as much more practical. In life, you're not actually going to be a unicorn farmer. What you need to do is become an accountant thinking and thinking I'm channeling my inner Monty Python actually at that point is that where we can find so much difficulty as a parent because actually we know what and I say no in inverted commas we know what it is that they need to do and so actually now my job just becomes about shepherding getting them to that point which in my own experience was 
little bit of bribery, an awful lot of blackmail and considerable screaming and shouting at the end. Do you think, though, that in all seriousness, that that's at the heart of this is that that parents sort of have forgotten what it's like to dream? That's a really interesting point. Yeah, I think there is a, a really important emphasis to make here, and that's the difference between a super-specific job-related goal and a, perhaps a broader thematic who you are. And, and it's a, an important role for parents and schools to explore this one, I think. Part of the work that Steve and I do is begin to examine the work of someone like Stephen Reese at Ohio State University who examines the motivations of individuals. We've found, I think, working with students that the better they know themselves, the better they begin to explore attitudes, their values, their beliefs, the more likely they are to pick something that I think suits that growing sense of themselves as individuals. So sometimes we see this disconnect between an aspiration towards the job and the person I'm becoming as I grow up and realise who I am. So what we have sometimes is students stuck with a job in mind. I'm going to be a journalist. I'm going to be a criminal lawyer. So they have the what, but they don't necessarily have the why. Why is that important? What problems do I see in the world around me that uh, taking up that position will help me solve? I think to come back to your original point, Nathan, we broaden the notion of a goal or a purpose to what problems do we see in the world around us? What's our purpose going to be in, in making the world a better place? We might see opportunities proliferate rather than converge on one specific job, which is then often frustrated by particular obstacles. That's part of the work that Steve and I have been doing, trying to encourage that focus on purpose and problem, as opposed to the fragility, I guess. Of that reminds me of the statistic which is probably made up that 80% of the jobs that children will be doing in the future don't actually exist today. So that underlines that, doesn't it? How can I be desperate to be a mechanic if actually cars won't exist, for example? So Sam, how do we help our children to focus, I guess, on the here and now and the mundane trivia of actually you've got to study because the first step is going to be these tests or these exams, while also trying to encourage them to be non-specific about where it is that that might take them. I appreciate this has probably been said in a few of the other answers, actually. It's that kind of Simon Sinek starting with why. The first bit is actually parents emphasising the importance of education, the importance of knowledge, the importance of knowing as much as you can, within reason, of course, and equally of being as successful as you can be within school, within the parameters of what you're able to achieve and being realistic about that as well. So we're not saying that every pupil, you know, it would be ideal, wouldn't it, of course, if every pupil could get a grade nine, fantastic, or an A star at A level. But I think being realistic with your child as a parent. But I think we need to flip the narrative, which I think is what's being hinted at here, which is this isn't about your son or daughter becoming a doctor and going off to study medicine at you know, one of the top 12 universities in the land. If we think about GCSEs, it's about building blocks and actually keys that open doors. By succeeding at this particular stage in the here and now, and if we think about the here and now, that is a set of keys that you've been given that allows you to open the next door, which is then your post-16 set of destinations, whether that's an apprenticeship, a college course, or indeed to stay on in a sixth form within maybe your own existing school. 
And then that phase of your educational career is will give you, provide you with another set of keys, which will open up another set of doors. So then what we're not engaging with our children is that Arsenal syndrome of you're never, ever going to play for Arsenal. It's probably better that you realise that for yourself. And I remember when I was 19 watching Michael Owen fielded out for England age 17 and thinking, it, that's never going to happen. I'm all right at football, but I'm not that all right. And I think that was a less painful kind of realisation than my dad going, do you know what, you're not really very good at it, mate. But I think if we change that narrative, and parents are able to do that as well, this is providing you with a set of keys that opens up the next set of doors and another wealth of opportunity for you. And if we can continue to build that, almost like a, you know, an armoury that we can then move forwards in life with. I think that is a far better narrative for our children. But isn't there also a reality of this situation that teens are in, whether that's GCSE or A-level? And I suspect more GCSE because this is the first time that they will have come up to public exams in the same kind of way. That actually motivation may not be enough. There's also the rigour of getting through and doing something. There's also discipline. Actually, you might not be enthusiastic, let's say, about sitting down to work your way through a pile of geography case studies, but actually you have to. How can we help our children by instilling, well, is it discipline, Steve? I don't know whether I'd use the word discipline. I think I'd be more interested in have they got the right tactics to approach that study? Do they know how to, you know, do they know the how behind it? And I think schools do obviously a great job to try and help students with this, but they might miss it or they might not cover it enough. So it's not enough sometimes just to sit down and push through that. It's, it's thinking about, right, how am I going to actually approach this period of study? What are my tactics? What am I going to do? What's the purpose of sitting down this? And I think even just having a, you know, we're talking about goals and thinking way ahead here in career set. But I think having just a short time go, what am I going to even do in this period of study? What's the outcome going to be? How am I going to know if I've made progress or not? And I think then, you know, building those small steps into that, having the right tactics is more important than sort of that just, you know, gritty spirit. Let's get down and just get it done. Well, what, get what done and how, you know, is often two questions we're thinking about before we get to that. Sam, how do we overcome that first hurdle? I mean, if throughout the long summer, as we've had, our teens have been hopefully resting, building up, they certainly wouldn't have been going out very much. And now they've got to get back into the swing of things. How do we get them to that point where, as Steve was talking about there, we can look at what do you want to get out of this study? What's the purpose of it? What are your tactics, etc.? to actually get them to agree this is something that they need to do. Yeah, I think there's two strands. Firstly, I think there's a sense of routine. I'm not trying to contradict what was already said, because I actually completely agree. But I think if you've got an established routine that you know that every evening during a set time period, there's a designated space within the house that is laid out for you or wherever you live, and it is expected that you are going to get on with that work and it then becomes habitual. I think there's that element and that's easier said than done, of course. And then absolutely the second aspect is what is it you're actually trying to do within that study session? If you're revising for sake of argument, it, again, going back to that idea of big insurmountable goals, if you were to say, right, I'm going to revise geography. Well, you're, if you were to pile your geography you know, exercise books up for a GCSE course, they could come up to your kneecaps from the ground. And if you look at it you know, as it is, you know, that just looks like it's impossible. But there will be no doubt within that, that, you know, that, that course that you've, you've, you're studying, you've learned a lot that you know and a lot that you are 
really confident and comfortable with do you really need to go back over that all the time you probably will at some point need to go back over it to refresh your memory of course I think it's more important to hone in on the bits that you don't know or that you aren't so secure in what are your Achilles heels which are the areas of that particular course that you struggle with and again if I think back to my own GCSE studies for history I'm a history teacher by trade but I struggled with the League of Nations as a topic so I spent most of my time when I was revising for my GCSE history exam on the League of Nations trying to work on learning that and retaining it because I was very confident with the rest of the course and actually I would have been wasting my time you know practicing and rehearsing and revising and going over the other bits when actually I really need to hone in on one specific thing that was actually ultimately going to make or break my you know, the grade I was aiming for at the end. So I think it is back to that knowing why, what it is, and the real specific aspects. Otherwise, it can be completely insurmountable. Just building on what Sam has been saying there, Martin's come up with a, a nice idea about the shadow timetable, something we've been working on a lot with, certainly with Pulse 16 students as well. Yes, we've been talking about the ways in which timetables are constructed during key stage two, three, four, and beyond. We've become particularly interested in the way in which timetables are collaboratively constructed post-16, particularly, and then at university. So an organisation might offer, we're going to fill two-thirds of your time and you're going to do the rest. Or uh, an undergraduate studying history, say, at Edinburgh University might be given six to eight to ten hours, perhaps, guided learning during the week and the rest of the week is yours to construct. And what's become quite interesting, I think, working with young students recently, is the way in which we don't control the language of collaborative time design as an organisation or as a parent. The student gets the sense that if I'm not timetabled, I'm quote-unquote free. I think some of the work we're going to have to do with students is to explore with them, particularly in these unusual times, the collaborative nature of timetable design. The students are going to need two timetables, one that the organisation gives for when normal service is happening, but one that they have in a very self-directed way designed to work outside of the school environment. And I think Sam's touched here on the importance of environment and its impact on productivity and focus and concentration. And I think that's going to be more than ever a really important point as well. Indistractable spaces that mean students can work for five, 50 minutes at a time and build up their levels of concentration. The idea of the collaborative timetable is so interesting in that as a parent of a GCSE child, and this is absolutely the experience that I have with Jake, was that he couldn't be trusted to do it on his own because he absolutely would have seen a free period as being time off. Also, if he had scheduled time for geography, for example, that he would have naturally gone back to something that he was comfortable with, so Oxbow Lakes, because he knew it. And there's a good feeling in being able to sit down and, and work through something together. So there are dangers, certainly at outset, and from my experience with this collaborative idea. But what I found more and more, and it'd be interesting, Steve and Sam, to see whether or not your experience can back this up, is that actually when you give them the idea of purpose and success at the end of this week looks like, how can we direct your time? How much are you going to spend? What specifically are you going to do? That actually the children and even younger teens really take to that accountability and sense of responsibility and start to own the process. That was a real watershed moment for me and the study buddy was when Jake 
would go from being the grunting teen who this was happening to, don't you really think you ought to be doing a bit more, to, well, tell me if you think you need to do more of this. Are you comfortable with the levels of English language that you're working on in the run-up to the exams? Is that something that you found, Sam, that young people can and do rise to this challenge when they understand the importance of it for themselves? I think if they're guided, and this is again where the synergy between the school and parents is so important, but if they're guided to specific aspects of a course that they struggle with, most pupils have got a degree of self-realisation if there are areas of a course that they're not particularly strong at. Whether they want to admit that or not varies from one pupil to the next, and whether they want to engage with that will vary from one pupil to the next. But if I think about the revision approach that that we've undertaken as a school, we have kind of a a blitzkrieg mentality with the the last 10 weeks, and we call it the 10-week countdown, which is after the mock exams. And we've undertaken a forensic kind of analysis of where our pupils are and aren't and what they do and do not know. And that's also based on everything that we know about them from the previous 18 months. But we will direct our pupils to after school revision sessions. And there's a very clear timetable that's mapped out for our pupils. But if they're going to go, for sake of argument, to maths, it's not about maths as a whole it's about from one week to the next they'll go and do something really specific so if we know that pupil x struggles in five distinct parts of maths let's just make it up it's algebra pythagoras etc then in week one it would be a case that the after school sessions for you are going to be on pythagoras we will have that dialogue with parents as well where we're really honest about saying they're really good at this this and this but they're not so good at this this and this and this is what they need to focus on and then it's making it again measurable when I say measurable it's achievable they're making we're we're trying to make the goal of nailing Pythagoras something that's really achievable so they can then go on to think about their other Achilles heel and work on that but equally when you're in those kind of finite amounts of time of 10 to 12 weeks we don't really want to be overloading the kids our pupils or indeed from the parent perspective with hundreds of things they need to work on it's what's going to make the biggest difference what are the two or three key things that will make the biggest difference to you overall and the grade that you might achieve in that exam hall i do just want to pick up on what you were talking about there that you have the this blitzkrieg mentality just before the exams because that can be a motivating factor in and of itself can't it the exams are now looming how can i get myself into gear to focus on that in this current situation covid and We've had, obviously, last year's exams were cancelled and we had central assessed grades, etc. Pupils and teachers, and certainly parents, have got to be mindful of the fact that actually it's not impossible that that could happen again for any, any one of a number of reasons, as we heard on last week's episode. Given that kind of context, actually, there may not be uh, this last-minute surge to the line that they'll have. So is fear a good enough motivator to start our children looking at this now that actually you need to be doing something to impress, to demonstrate your capabilities, to give the teachers what they need to be able to argue for, or evidence rather, a six or seven or eight or a nine or whatever it might be? How do we go about doing it now without piling on anxiety? Martin. Yeah, let's begin with this idea of fear. I think let's look at it more broadly. If you think about the distinction between strategy and okay, on the one hand, we've got an overarching strategy. We've got a motivational approach here. As a school or as a parent, I've got six or eight or ten things in my toolkit to keep the kids going when things get hard. Uh, underneath that sits my tactics, my eight or ten, twelve conversations I've got lined up. And I think, Nathan, you referred to, didn't you? 
didn't you? Uh, various tactics and phases you moved through as you were trying to motivate your son. If you've got a limited toolkit and fears your big card that you regularly play, you're in trouble. Okay, <laughs> there needs to be a rich and varied, I think, ecosystem of motivational tactics under there. Of which fear, when it's appropriately used, might be one I would prefer, I think, to be developing intrinsic motivational is in individual students rather than pushing them endlessly but with fear of external realities because we know that though it might activate action you can't use fear to sustain action over a period you can't keep students in a fearful state for two or three months we're looking for something that's intrinsic that that, that persistence and intensity will come from more positive and mental models. So it might be a starting point, it might be good for activation energy and getting some work done in the short term. We're looking for something to replace it over the longer term and that's going to be a much more positive intrinsic sense of values. Steve, so fear as being a valid if not necessarily a preferred one, what are the other kinds of tactics that we might use to activate? And I love that idea that there's something that we could do that could kickstart our young people into action, but absolutely take on board that that's not what you want to continually pile on the pressure with. So Steve, what, what alternatives might we be looking at as activation? Yeah, fear, fear is definitely overused as a strategy, I think. But in terms of tactics, there's a number of different ones that you can think about. Sam's mentioned one, I think environment, first of all. You know, if you look at creating an environment that has got a limited amount of distractions in that space before they start working in there, I think you'd be amazed. I know it sounds ridiculously simple, but you'd be amazed what happens. I noticed my son was working in his bedroom last year, going through his GCSEs, and he's putting the time in, he's doing the hours. But I noticed that those hours are very distracted with the PlayStation's always on standby, TV's on, no sound on. He's got one earpiece in listening to some music. He's got his phone in there as well. I'm like, blame me Could we have any more distractions in this space? If we tried, I don't think we could put any more in there. With my middle son, I sell everything to him that I can save him time. This is the buy. I can say to him, look, I notice you're spending two hours in your room each night in that sort of space where there's a lot going on and lads wanting games of FIFA all the time. I reckon you can do less if you work in a different space. So you might only have to do an hour. And he's like, but straight away, he's, in, he's interested. He's thinking, right, this is interesting. He's saying I can do less here, but work in a more effective way. So let's get out of that space. Let's go downstairs. Let's get in this indistractable space. In our house as well, we have a, a saying called going dark which means the Wi-Fi goes off. All digital and less needed is removed from the space. And then there's the idea of working in sprints that seem to work best for him. And, and you might start at whatever time you think is a good one. But for my son, it was 20-minute sprints. So he, he could stay focused for 20 minutes and then he'd have a short break, 10 or 15 minutes where he checks his phone, has a wander around, does whatever. And then he comes back and does another 20-minute sprints. And the idea was that he'd do three sprints rather than do two hours in his bedroom. And he bought into that. He thought, yeah, actually, if I come in, get the three sprints done, I can get on the PlayStation quicker and the night is then mine and I'm free and uh, free to do what I want. If he's having problems starting, just a real simple 
trick that I've, I use on myself even is just that it's called the 10 minute rule. I think I don't know who came up with this, but just you just say to yourself or say to your son or daughter, look, and they're, they're kicking off rather than say, look, come on, you need to sit down and do your hours sprint. Go all right tonight. I tell you what, just do 10 minutes. Just do 10 minutes and see how you feel at the end of it. And if you want to pack in at the end of it, pack in. Um, let's see how you do. Now, if you don't remind them that the 10 minutes is up, more often than not, they just keep going. It's the starting these things. That, I mean, we all do it as adults even, don't we? I mean, the number of times in school I used to uh, put off re- writing reports thinking it was some horrific long job and then you sit down and you've got it cracked within 50 minutes. You're thinking, why did I let that build up? So it's the starting that's often the hard bit. And then once you're into it, and, and you do that by tricking yourself that it's not going to be as bad as it's perhaps you initially thought. Listening to you, Steve, I, I worried that you could actually sell me snake oil. I'm I'm ready to buy. I'm I'm in for a litre. <laughs> Everybody out. <laughs> I've got all the time. I, I have a sale. I think parents, it is sales. By having a go at them, you get nowhere. I've done it even with my daughter, who's highly committed and but in revising in the wrong way. I've been saying to her, look, it's all about time. You can make your life better. You can. So there's got to be a sales pitch and parents can reduce a lot of the friction. If you start going in, you're not working hard enough. Straight away, it's going to be heads together and uh, you're going nowhere apart from an argument. I've always tried to use that, <laughs> that sales strategy. We have the same. So obviously going through this process with Jake and I've got a daughter who's in year 10. I'll sit down. We'll talk about. So how do you think things are going? And she'll look at me and you can see the eyes sort of squinting. You go, don't do the coaching bit right now. <laughs> Fair enough. I can see how it goes. But it is something in there, isn't it? That actually, if you can, as a parent, come up with this armory of tactics and know that you're going to call on them before you need them, actually, you take the emotion out of that response. Certainly, that was where Jake and I butt heads all the time. We're very similar in personality. And so it would just degrade very, very quickly into tension and stress. Standing back and looking in, you'd say, well, I I know I didn't handle that very well. Had I have had a 10-minute rule that I could have called on or or some other tactics, then actually you can see how the entire household becomes so much less stressful. Another way of encouraging students to work is for them to first check in and make an assessment of their current levels of attention and energy. One of the things that Steve and I do with students you might be feeling fried and foggy and exhausted after a long day so the important thing to do is pick a task that you can still complete effectively in that particular state of attention often students find work at home hard because they're choosing high stakes difficult to do at the wrong time of day or at the wrong state of attention so we've worked with young people who for example have a particular test they're preparing for and rather than do that in a proactive state of attention and positive energy at the start of the day they might leave it until half past eight or nine o'clock at night and then it becomes an intensely kind of psycho-emotional challenge that often students can't complete at all so one way forward might be to say well let's check in what's our levels of attention or energy today what are we up to now if we're not feeling strong enough to tackle something don't put yourself through the the difficulties let's choose two or three smaller tasks that you might be able to effectively pick up and then we'll design a reward or you can choose a reward that you get at the end of 
So that's another way forward, I think, when students are feeling like they're hitting the wall. That idea of of reviewing and planning ahead is something that we advocate a lot. It's looking at, well, if Tuesday after school isn't isn't the right time for you, you've had games beforehand or you, you've got something coming up, don't try to fill that space with work if actually it's not a conducive aim for you to be getting on with things. One last thing on motivation I think worth throwing in is we've been very focused on the academic here and it's just, I don't know whether anyone has mentioned this, but it is just as important to really think through all the recreation activities, all the extracurricular activities that you can do through this because we need to maintain motivation. We also need revigoration don't we and it's important to make sure that those are planned and taken you know I've seen a lot of students give up some of these in GCSE or A level years and I think it has a really negative effect on them so just you know plan those in first and then build your study around your other activities you know make sure you don't give them up absolutely and certainly with Jake and then the study buddy approach was absolutely balancing first and foremost are your commitments the things that you actually have to do so go to school clean your bedroom whatever they might be part-time job and then as um, as Steve and then Sam were talking about building in those fun things whether they are the extracurricular activities the party on a Friday night all of these kinds of things that then come in would result in a lion on a Saturday morning which then gives you a view, actually, your time isn't all spent studying. These are important, but they're not everything. And as you say, the earlier you can get into this view of time as being something that you control rather than is happening to you, absolutely the better for productivity as well as for mental state. I think this goes back, doesn't it, to the routines and the habits that you build, but that's over a long, sustained period of time. I think about, I'm going to be biased here, about the approach that we take as a school. From when our pupils arrive in year seven, rather than kind of reactively giving pupils homework from one day to the next, as an example, we have knowledge organisers, which we're not the only school in the country to have those, but built into those are the homework tasks for any one term. Or, or half term and what we do kind of on day one and this looks like it's the big mountain is we give them all the homework tasks at the start and the narrative with parents is we're being upfront with you from the beginning these are the homeworks your, your child needs to do these are the deadlines for them all and they all don't just fall you know on the same day at the same point but it's about then about personal organization about absolutely what what steve's just said build in when you're going to go and play football you're going to go and play netball you're going to go to the cinema all the normal things that we like to do with our lives but then map in when you're going to do that homework and I think if you've got that kind of longer term habit and routine built in when you then come to revising for your GCSE exams it's not suddenly this massive shock to the system that you've got to suddenly become routinized in your life in a way that you may never have had to have done before So I think it's about building that over time. And I think I've got one more I'd like to add, and that is that a lot of our focus during this discussion has been about looking ahead, hasn't it? What's the next six weeks going to be like? What am I trying to achieve in eight weeks or 10 weeks or a year? I think it's important during the sustained kind of persistent part of study to check back as well. How far have I come? What have I achieved so far? Can we reconnect with three or four successes I've had this term or half term can we look back at two or three kind of victories that occurred when a grade came through that I was really pleased with or school sent a letter home because they were really pleased with the way I'd helped out with open evening I think we have to encourage 
to, to check in with those previous experiences. Because that thrill, that feeling of seeing improvement and of moving forward is part of sustaining motivation. Mm. And certainly chimes with that growth mindset approach, doesn't it? That actually it wasn't just about the grade, although I accept, of course, that a grade and a test is a, um, a valid marker as you go through. But it's that process of moving through that can help me to burn my way through a to-do list. That I'm, I'm improving all the time. I didn't think I'd be able to do that, but actually look after a couple of weeks of really focusing, I've been able to. Those kinds of more immediate successes are the fuel, as you say, that can keep them driving towards their ultimate goal or vision. Wow. That was a lot of content and ideas to cram into one podcast. My thanks to Sam, Steve and Martin for so generously sharing their insights and their tips. Getting our teens to find their inspiration when it comes to getting on with studying can seem a bit like pushing water up a hill. It's not helped by the fact that no two young people are the same when it comes to drive and motivation. So while this episode could never have delivered a silver bullet, I hope that what you've heard today will take you a long way to identifying how to support, if not encourage, your teen to find what drives them. Many of us, and I include myself, might have believed that simply having an endpoint to focus on would be enough. What job do you want to do? What university do you want to study at? But even the most vivid visualisation of that future won't be enough without some of the qualities and, and those foundations that our experts have talked about. Chief among them for me is breaking down that, that vision, a big goal, into smaller, more manageable steps. Sometimes it's the enormity of a thing that can be so overwhelming that actually it can be demotivating. So identifying the building blocks, as Sam talked about, and working to something that's more immediately achievable can drive a feeling of success in our young people and then spur them on to do more. Sam's points about routine also really struck a note with me. This isn't about being regimented, but rather about having a plan, about sticking to that plan, and also to review its usefulness as you go along. We've seen this with the study buddy, that that, that feeling of control that students get can really help them to feel more determined. One of the key takeaway points for me is understanding that there's a difference between an activating and a sustaining motivator. And hearing Stephen Martin talk about this just immediately made sense, like a, like a penny dropped. Something like a reward or a fear might act as a trigger for many of us. And for many of us, this is going to be high in our list of go-to toolkits. But these are the transient motivators and they're not enough to sustain the effort for long periods of time. How many of us default to a bribe or a threat as a way of encouraging our children to do something that they've been resisting? Considering some appropriate motivation tactics ahead of time will save that in-the-spur-of-the-moment flare-up that a great number of us will experience. And that stress reduction is good for everyone. Taking the time to understand what your child defines as success, what their vision of their own future is, is absolutely key. This might not be specific, I'm going to be a dentist, and it might not also align with your own take on what their future will hold. But this is going to be at the very heart of what will motivate your young person to dig a bit deeper and to strive for their own version of greatness. Thank you for listening. I hope that you found this episode informative and useful. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a five-star rating would be fantastic. It helps us to reach other parents 
who are looking at how they can best support their own teams on their journey to GCSEs. Of course, you sharing these episodes with your friends is a great way too, and it's always much appreciated. There'll be another episode next week, so don't forget to subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.